welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey, just me. We're going to have Benison Smith, special guest extraordinaire, bring you the concurring decision by Justice Gonthier in Nova Scotia AG and Walsh. If you want to hear Benison's excellent explanation of this case, and hear me, Zach, and Benison chat about what it means and what it stands for, head on back to the majority decision. Enjoy! The following are the reasons delivered by Justice Gonchier. I'm in agreement with the reasons of Justice Bastache. However, I wish to add certain comments to emphasize the individual and social importance of the choice to enter into marriage. The right to equality is a comparative right, the scope of which can only be understood with reference to an appropriate comparator group. The purpose of such a comparison is to determine whether the person invoking Section 15 Sub 1 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is subject to differential treatment sufficient to constitute a violation of the equality right. A range of factors must be taken into account in determining the appropriate comparator group and comparative factors, including, most notably, the social, political, and legal context. See The Queen and Turpin, 1989. The respondent Walsh claims that she is a victim of discrimination because she does not benefit from the presumption of equal division of matrimonial property applicable to married couples. In her opinion, the similarities between a common law union and a marriage are such that differential treatment necessarily violates her dignity. In short, she suggests that all benefits and burdens conferred on married couples must equally be accorded to common law couples. Legislative provisions that attach burdens and advantages to marriage are not discriminatory in and of themselves. Legislatures are entitled to define and promote certain fundamental institutions. The institution of marriage is founded on the consent of the parties. As Justice Bastache expressed, marriage is contractual in nature. It is therefore fitting that certain attributes, rights, and obligations, which serve to give marriage its unique character, are not conferred on unmarried couples. Indeed, these are characteristics that distinguish marriage from other forms of cohabitation. 1. Marriage and the Family Marriage and the family existed long before any legislature decided to regulate them. For centuries, they have been central to society, contributing to its social cohesion and fundamental structure. See generally the New Encyclopedia Britannica, 15th edition, 1990. As stated by Professor J. Pinot, quote, in translation, The state cannot be unconcerned with marriage, since it provides the necessary stability in a family's life. According to the true order, the laws relating to marriage should be those which are first determined in every state, said Plato. See Mariage, Separation, Divorce, L'Etat du Droit au Québec. Marriage and the family promote the psychological, social, and economic well-being of all members of the family unit. It is within the family that individuals can express their deepest and most intimate feelings. The preamble to the Act respecting the Concierge de la Famille and de l'Enfance of Quebec recognizes the family as, quote, the first cultural and social environment in which every individual is born, end quote, and further states that, quote, the welfare of the society is based on the welfare of the family and of the individuals composing it. Marriage, a commitment that is entered into on the basis that it is permanent and irrevocable, gives structure to the family, providing it with the stability best suited to the education and rearing of children. 
Indeed, the concepts of marriage and family are intimately intertwined. Article 16 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, illustrates the link between these institutions as well as their central importance to our society. Quote, Article 16, 1. Men and women of full age, without any limitation due to race, nationality, or religion, have the right to marry and to found a family. They are entitled to equal rights as to marriage during marriage and at its dissolution. 2. Marriage shall be entered into only with the free and full consent of the intending spouses. 3. The family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society, and it is entitled to protection by society and the state." End quote. Similarly, in Moog & Moog, 1992, at page 848, this court made the following comments, quote, Marriage and the family are a superb environment for raising and nurturing the young of our society by providing the initial environment for the development of social skills. These institutions also provide a means to pass on the values that we deem to be central to our sense of community. End quote. The fundamental nature of marriage inheres in, among other things, its central role in human procreation and its ability to offer both children and parents a framework for the development of values within the family. Living together as a family and rearing children in this context is foundational to our society. Marriage and family life are not inventions of the legislature. Rather, the legislature is merely recognizing their social importance. The modern state regulates marriage through numerous legislative measures and thereby recognizes the importance of this institution. As Justice LaForest stated in Egan and Canada, 1995, at paragraph 21, quote, Marriage has from time immemorial been firmly grounded in our legal tradition, one that is itself a reflection of long-standing philosophical and religious traditions, end quote. The institution of marriage is shaped through legislation, and its role as a fundamental institution is recognized at both provincial and national levels. In recognition of the importance of the social act of marriage, the Fathers of Confederation saw fit to divide powers in this area between the provincial and federal governments. Section 91, sub 26 of the Constitutional Act 1867 gives Parliament jurisdiction over marriage and divorce. Under this head of power, it recently enacted the Modernization of Benefits and Obligations Act 2000. Section 1.1 of this statute states that the amendments made by the new act, quote, do not affect the meaning of the word marriage, that is, the lawful union of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others, end quote. In Quebec, Section 5 of the Federal Law, Civil Law Harmonization Act of 2001 serves to define the institution of marriage by providing that, quote, marriage requires the free and enlightened consent of a man and a woman to be the spouse of the other, end quote. Section 92 sub 12 of the Constitution Act 1867 provides that jurisdiction over, quote, the solemnization of marriage in the province, end quote, belongs to the provinces. Thus, for instance, Article 365 of the Civil Code of Quebec states that, quote, marriage shall be contracted openly in the presence of two witnesses before a competent officiant, end quote. Furthermore, common law definitions of marriage support the view that it is a lawful and voluntary union of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. See Hyde and Hyde, 1866. The Constitution clearly empowers the legislature to determine in formulating social policy the rights and obligations of married couples and to decide whether it will confer some or all of these rights and obligations on unmarried couples. In Nova Scotia, the legislature expressed its intention to promote the family through marriage in the preamble to the Matrimonial Property Act. Quote, 
Whereas it is desirable to encourage and strengthen the role of the family in society, and whereas for that purpose it is necessary to recognize the contribution made to a marriage by each spouse, and whereas in support of such recognition it is necessary to provide in law for the orderly and equitable settlement of the affairs of the spouses upon the termination of a marriage relationship, and whereas it is necessary to provide for mutual obligations in family relationships, including the responsibility of parents for their children, and whereas Whereas it is desirable to recognize that childcare, household management, and financial support are the joint responsibilities of the spouses and that there is a joint contribution by the spouses, financial and otherwise, that entitles each spouse equally to the matrimonial assets." End quote. This act addresses matrimonial assets acquired during the marriage by considering the effect of marriage breakdown on the assets of the spouses. It offers married couples a legal framework within which the division of matrimonial assets will be addressed. The Nova Scotia legislature chose not to extend the application of the Matrimonial Property Act to unmarried couples. Although the wording of the act makes the intention of the legislature very clear, I refer nonetheless to comments made in the final report of the Nova Scotia Commission that studied the issue of division of matrimonial assets. Quote, the Matrimonial Property Act was adopted in Nova Scotia in 1980 as a part of a general law reform movement in all common law provinces which attempted to address dissatisfaction with the existing law regarding the division of property on the ending of marriage, end quote. See Law Reform Commission of Nova Scotia, Final Report, Reform of the Law Dealing with Matrimonial Property in Nova Scotia, published in 1997. 2. Contractual Nature of Marriage Married status can only be acquired through the expression of a clear, free, and personal choice without which the marriage may be annulled. As I wrote in Myron and Trudel, 1995, at paragraph 46, quote, The decision to marry includes the acceptance of various legal consequences incident to the institution of marriage, including the obligation of mutual support between spouses and the support and raising of children of the marriage. In my view, freedom of choice and the contractual nature of marriage are crucial to understanding why distinctions premised on marital status are not necessarily discriminatory. Where individuals chose not to marry, it would undermine the choice they have made if the state were to impose upon them the very same burdens and benefits which it imposes upon married persons. The authors Michael D. A. Freeman and Christina M. Lyon in Cohabitation Without Marriage, published in 1983, make these points, quote, Marriage is a voluntary institution in which the parties express their willingness to commit themselves to each other for life. Whether they are completely cognizant of all the legal effects of such a commitment is immaterial. The commitment is made, nevertheless, and marital rights and obligations inevitably follow. Cohabitating couples do not make the same commitment, and rights and duties akin to marriage should not, as a result, follow. The danger with imposing the incidence of marriage on a cohabitating couple is that it constitutes a denial of fundamental freedom. End quote. Marriage is an institution in which couples agree to participate by the expression of a formal and public choice. The contractual nature of marriage distinguishes married couples from common law couples who have not expressed their wish to be bound by the obligations of marriage. This is not to deny that many unmarried couples have relationships similar to those of married couples, marked by love and longevity. 
Clearly, although marriage can offer an environment conducive to the well-being of the family, marriage is not the only way to achieve this end. As my colleague, Justice Leroux Dubay states in her reasons, more and more couples are choosing not to marry in Canada, and the legislatures have responded to this reality by enacting numerous legislative provisions that seek to promote tr values tr traditionally associated with marriage, while also imposing obligations and conferring benefits on unmarried couples. However, the fact that some unmarried couples have relationships similar to married couples does not undermine the central distinguishing feature of the institution of marriage, permanent contractual commitment. Marriage is of a solemn and permanent nature, and couples who have entered into such a contractual commitment constitute a large majority in this country. As Professor Zed Wu demonstrates, the marital relationship is the most stable form of relationship. Almost 90% of first marriages last at least 10 years, whereas only 12% of common law relationships achieve this duration. See Cohabitation, an alternative form of family living, published in 2000. According to Professor Wu, quote, There is no doubt that cohabiting unions are more vulnerable and less stable than marital ones. Indeed, less than half of all cohabiting unions are expected to last for three years. End quote. It is by choice that married couples are subject to the obligations of marriage. When couples undertake such a life project, they commit to respect the consequences and obligations flowing from their choice. The choice to subject to such obligations and to undertake a lifelong commitment underlies and legitimates the system of benefits and obligations attached to marriage generally, and in particular, those relating to matrimonial assets. To accept the respondent Walsh's argument, thereby extending the presumption of equal division of matrimonial assets to common law couples, would be to intrude into the most personal and intimate of life choices by imposing a system of obligations on people who never consented to such a system. In effect, to presume that common law couples want to be bound by the same obligations as married couples is contrary to their choice to live in a common law relationship without the obligations of marriage. The permanent nature of marriage is not altered by the fact that one party can terminate it when the criteria set out in the Divorce Act are met. While young married couples hope for a lifetime of love and family unity, circumstances can of course transform the dream into a nightmare. In contemplation of this possibility, Parliament has provided a means for parties to put an end to marriage. However, Section 8 Sub 2 of the Divorce Act sets out the conditions to be met in order to obtain a divorce. Quote, Section 8, Sub 2. Breakdown of a marriage is established only if a. The spouse has lived separate and apart for at least one year immediately preceding the determination of the divorce proceeding and were living separate and apart at the commencement of the proceeding or the spouse against whom the divorce proceeding is brought has, since the celebration of marriage, committed adultery or treated the other spouse with physical or mental cruelty of such kind as to render intolerable the continued cohabitation of the spouses." End quote. Even if the philosophy of the Divorce Act has developed in recent years from a system for sanctioning errant spouses to one that recognizes marriage breakdown, divorce is nevertheless a very confined measure, applicable only when specific criteria are met. Marriage is still, in principle, a lifetime commitment. The Divorce Act provisions simply serve to remedy marriage failure. It is true that in M&H, 1999, at paragraph 177, I recognize that there is a, quote, growing political recognition that cohabiting 
opposite sex couples should be subject to the spousal support regime that applies to married couples because they have come to fill a similar social role. However, I want to underline the fundamental difference between spousal support based on the needs of the applicant and the division of matrimonial assets. While spousal support is based on need and dependency, the division of matrimonial assets distributes assets acquired during marriage without regard to need. Section 33, sub 9 of the Family Law Act demonstrates this distinction. This paragraph indicates, among other things, the factors relevant to determining the quantum of support, for which an equivalent may be found in Section 4 of the Maintenance and Custody Act of Nova Scotia. Quote, Section 33, sub 9. In determining the amount and duration, if any, of support for a spouse, same-sex partner, or parent in relation to need, the court shall consider all the circumstances of the party, including a. the dependents and respondents' current assets and means, b. the assets and means that the dependent and respondent are likely to have in the future, c. the dependent's capacity to contribute to his or her own support, d. the respondent's capacity to provide support, e. the dependent and respondent's age and physical and mental health, F. The dependent's needs in determining which the court shall have regard to the accustomed standard of living while the parties resided together. G. The measures available for the dependent to become able to provide for his or her own support, and the length of time and cost involved to enable the dependent to take those measures. H. Any legal obligation of the respondent or dependent to provide support for another person. I. The desirability of the dependent or respondent remaining at home to care for a child. J. A contribution by the dependent to the realization of the respondent's career potential. End quote. This provision demonstrates that a request for support must always be based on the particular needs of the applicant and the respondent and their capacity to provide for themselves and to each other. The division of matrimonial assets and spousal support have different objectives. One aims to divide assets according to a property regime chosen by the parties, either directly by contract or indirectly by the fact of marriage, while the other seeks to fulfill a social objective, meeting the needs of spouses and their children. This court also recognized in M and H, at paragraph 93, that one of the objectives of spousal support is to alleviate the burden on the public purse by shifting the obligation to provide support for needy persons to those spouses who have the capacity to support them. The support obligation responds to social concerns with respect to situations of dependency that may occur in common law relationships. However, that obligation, unlike the division of matrimonial property, is not of contractual nature. Entirely different principles underlie the two regimes. To invoke Section 15 Sub 1 of the Charter, to obtain spousal assets without regard to need, raises the specter of forcible taking in disguise, even if, in particular circumstances, equitable principles may justify it. The fundamental differences between common law and married couples make them inappropriate comparator groups in this respect. As Justice Binney stated in Granovsky and the Minister of Employment and Immigration of Canada, 2000, quote, while a Section 15 complainant is given considerable scope to identify the appropriate group for comparison, the claimant's characterization of the comparison may not always be sufficient. It may be that the differential treatment is not between the groups identified by the claimant, but rather between other groups. End quote. The situation of couples who have chosen life commitment through marriage is not comparable to that of unmarried couples 
when one considers the nature of their respective relationships. In the case of married couples, there is a permanent and reciprocal life commitment, to which the legislature has attached, among other things, a presumption of equal division of matrimonial assets while, in the absence of marriage, this foundational quality does not exist. The Charter does not require that the legislature treat the two groups identically. For the foregoing reasons, and those expressed by Justice Bastache, I would answer the constitutional questions as answered by Justice Bastache, and I would allow the appeal. Appeal allowed. Uh, Justice Leroux Dubay dissenting. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at LegalListening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.